Good morning, everybody. I want to go ahead and invite our children to Children's Church. Um, teacher will meet you at the back there. And as they're going, <clears throat> let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, so many great songs we sang this morning, so many great words. Um, it is amazing that you give us thoughts that can even begin to touch your glory and, and to grasp the majesty that awaits us. Lord, we do long to crown you with many crowns. You are worthy of it. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd be with us this morning as we turn to your word. Holy Spirit, help us to, to see and to understand. Open our eyes and hearts to see, to hear, to believe, and to find the story beautiful. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So um, where we're at in Acts, I got to tell you, Monday I was in a panic because I read the section that I was supposed to preach today, and I went, oh, I should have done this last week. And then on Tuesday, I read it again. I went, oh, I've got to preach this in all of 26. That's too much. And so by the end of the week, I settled down and said, no, we'll just do this. Here's what's going on. Where we're at in the book of Acts, in my opinion, is the pinnacle. It is the peak of the story. Um, it is, and, and the reason I say that is because um, there's this idea called narrative pace, where when, how fast does the, uh, the, the storyteller talk, right? So like when Paul was with, uh, Felix, at one point, Luke just says, and he was there two years. Sums all up two years in like three words. It's real quick. That's a really fast narrative pace because what happened in those two years was not important. But now this story where Paul is about to be sent off to Caesar, it slows way down. That narrative pace really slows down. And one of the things you can tell when narrative pace slows down is there's repetition. We've heard, we'll hear this story about how Paul is, you know, arrested and everything. We'll hear it three times. Because the pace is slowed down, Luke is repeating himself a lot. So if we're being honest with it, what, what this is telling us is this is important. This is really important part of the text. So last week, we heard the story once. Today, we'll hear it again. And then next week, we'll hear Paul's defense. So if there's repetition amongst the three messages, that's OK. And it is OK because I said it's OK. You're not preaching. You don't get to make that call. No, the reason it's okay is because Luke has slowed down so much. When he goes that pace, you need to pick it apart and figure out what's going on. Why would he waste ink repeating himself if it wasn't important? So the message we're going to hear today is going to sound a lot like the message last week, but the application is going to be a little bit different, okay? So I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. So that's, just, that's where we're at in the book of Acts. Why is this the pinnacle of the story? Now, remember, my theory on, on the book of Acts is it's Jesus' disciples making disciples. So when we get to this and we see Paul arrested and put on trial repeatedly, and people repeatedly saying, he hadn't done anything, but he's still arrested, it's really important for disciples to hear this because things don't always go our way. And how do we face that? And so that's what we're going to see today is we're going to see how can Paul stand in front of this, this much power. So the first part will be Festus's problem. Festus, he's going to lay out, this is my dilemma. This is what I've got to face. Um, then we'll find the court convene, or uh, yeah, the court convenes. So the, the trial people that are going to hear his case all come together. And then after that, what I'd like to do is kind of reflect on how can Paul stand in front of these folks? What gives him the power to do that? So a little bit of a repetition, but um, it's the Bible, so repetition's okay. Um, and I can't say that too much. Ooh, sorry, not proud of that joke. So uh, first of all, it says, after some days had passed, Agrippa 
the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So can you throw the map up real quick? Uh, who's Agrippa and who's Bernice and who cares why they were there? Well, if you can see this map, um, the blue area down here, that's the, um, the council, that's the area that uh, Festus is in charge of. That's what he's over. It's a Roman protectorate. It's a Roman province. The Romans are running it. That, that's that part. Now, originally, uh, back around uh, the BC, AD, BC line, Herod the Great ruled all of it. But when Herod the Great died, it had to be split up. So the Romans are ruling that, that part. Did I turn this off? I think I just broke it. There we go. So the Romans are ruling that part. All of this up here, all of these circles up here, that's where Herod Agrippa II, that's Agrippa here, that's where he rules. So of course he would come down and meet the new governor. These guys are going to have to work together because that's mostly Jewish area that they're dealing with. So they have to deal with these kind of Jewish problems. So King Agrippa and Bernice, who are they? Well, Agrippa was born about 28 AD and lived to about 100 AD. Um, he was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, he, uh, Herod the Great was the ruler of Judea at Jesus' birth. So remember the horrible story where Herod killed all the infants? It was that Herod, they call him great. I wouldn't think of the word great when I think of a man who kills infants like that. So Herod Agrippa II, his great-grandson, um, was the king, or the, he, he took the kingdom of um, Chalcis up here, this little area up there was a little minor tributary thing, but he was pronounced king and put in charge of this uh, because his uncle had died, and so he took over. Um, then in about 53 AD, uh, the Tetrarchy of, of uh, Philip, you all know what that means, right? I don't need to explain that. The Tetrarchy was the five parts of the kingdom that were split up amongst different Herods. Uh, Philip ruled this part over here. That was then turned over to Agrippa. So he took that over, and his influence kind of continued to spread. So he was a king. He was, he was a king installed by, uh, by Caesar, and he was half Jewish. His mother was Jewish. Um, now, what we'll see, and, and I'll go into more about why he's important later, but uh, one of the things that's really helpful for Festus at this point is because Agrippa's mother was Jewish, he became interested in Judaism. And so he was seen throughout the kingdom as, or through, through the empire as kind of the expert on the Jewish question. The, the, um, he was the, the expert on Judaism because he was part Jewish. So who's Bernice? If you're thinking his wife, you're, I'm right there with you. That's what I thought. It was actually his sister. So his sister Bernice, actually what she had done is she had married her uncle. Everybody say ooh. Um, she married her uncle, and he was the king of uh, Chalcis up here at the time. So when he died and Herod took over, Bernice moved in with her brother. You can say ooh again. That'll come up in a minute. Um, so she moved in with her brother. We'll hear more about her, too. Why would she get mentioned? She doesn't get one single line in this entire thing. She doesn't say a thing. Um, it'll become important later on. We'll see that. Uh, so they said that they stayed there a few days. This was an important state visit. This was these two people who are working for Rome are going to have to work together to keep this place under control. Now, where we're at in history is probably around 60 AD. Um, don't forget the Jewish war starts around 66 AD and ends in 70 when the Romans flatten the temple and, and chase everybody out of Jerusalem. So there's a lot going on politically at this point. 
we don't hear about it in, in the uh, New Testament, but we can, we can read it throughout history. There's a lot of rumblings going on, and there's a lot of uprisings starting, starting and going down. So it's really important for Herod and for Festus to work together. That's why they come together. That's why they spend some time together. They probably got a ton of stuff to cover. And so they work together to try to figure out how are we going to rule this region effectively. So Festus begins to lay out his case. Here's my problem. Um, I, I've got this issue, and I really need your help on it. And so he retells Paul's story. Um, he said that um, a man was left prisoner by Felix. Remember how bad I spoke of Felix last time? He's a very ineffective leader. And do you remember what Felix did with Paul? Put him in chains, held on to him, and said he kept calling him in to talk to him. And he, he didn't like the message. It terrified him. He was just hoping for some money. So he really is not a particularly good guy. Festus is looking at him and going, well, this is the problem I inherited. What do I do with him? Paul's a Roman citizen. I've got to figure out what I'm going to do with him. I need your help, Agrippa. So he, I've, I've inherited this problem. And then he tells a story about the chief priests and the elders coming down and asking for a sentence of condemnation. That's not necessarily asking for execution the way that particular part is phrased. It means we want you to find him guilty. That's the simplest term. Now, we know that they actually want him killed because it says in... Um, a verse I underlined but can't find, that this man should no longer live. So we know that's what's going on, but that's what they're asking for, is they want him found guilty and they want him executed. So that's, that's the plan. That's what they want to say. And this has been what's been going on all along, hasn't it? When he was in the temple and they arrested him in the temple, they were saying, away with this fellow. He shouldn't be on the earth any longer. So they've wanted him killed the whole time. Forty men, more than 40 men, got together and in made an oath that they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. They tried it again when he was brought, they wanted him to bring him back down to, to Jerusalem so that they'd have another shot at him. So they have, the, the Jews have been really adamant that they're going to kill Paul. He, he should die. And this is really perplexing Festus. What do I do? Um, he hasn't done it. As far as I can tell, he hasn't done anything. So what he does say, though, is he says, it's not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused meet the accusers face to face and have the opportunity to make his defense. Aren't you glad that's part of our legal system too? It's not as, as wide ranging, it's not as universal as you would think that legal systems work that way. You can be tried in some places in absentia and just found guilty and when you show up they kill you and you don't even know why. Um, sometimes you don't even get a trial. Sometimes you never face your accusers. Human history is just replete with a bunch of this stuff. But Roman law said this is not how it works. If a Roman is accused, they have to face their accusers. Isn't that the same with Jewish law? Do you remember from John chapter 7? Um, the, the, it's really hilarious because the, the officials, the chief priests and the Pharisees, send some guards to arrest Jesus. Go arrest Jesus. And they come back empty-handed. Why didn't you arrest them? And their response is, we never heard anybody talk like that. We can't arrest him. He sounds like a prophet. And so Nicodemus, who was one of them, he was, he was part of the council, had gone before them and he said, does, not our, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So even Jewish law, had they been following it, would mean that they would bring Paul in and listen to him. Do you remember Paul's trial before the Sanhedrin? He got to the point where he said, I believe in the resurrection, and the place exploded. He never got a chance to make his case, and yet there's this ongoing threat for his life. 
This, folks, is injustice. This is not how a legal system is supposed to work, but it's the threat that, um, that Paul is facing. It's the threat that Festus has to deal with, and he's got to figure out how to handle it. So he says, look, here's what I did as I investigated this, and the accusers brought no charge in this case of such evils as I had supposed. So what I had heard coming in before I brought Paul to them, before I went to hear their cases, I expected this was like another uh, insurrectionist or a murderer or something. And when I get there, nothing. They had nothing against him. They're arguing about some details about their religion, which I don't understand. Um, the word that, that uh, Festus uses for religion could be kind of negative or it could be neutral. Um, you got to tell from the context. I think in this context, since he's talking to Agrippa, he probably means it in a neutral way. Um, he didn't call it a superstition, which is an, another word that could have been used. So what he says is, I, I, all they had to offer me, all they brought to me were arguments about their religion. I don't know anything about their religion. He just got here. He hasn't really been indoctrinated or, or familiar with that kind of stuff. Then he says, and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserted to be alive. The, the ESV says, who was dead. And I think it's a poor translation. That's why I'm glad Jim read from the NASB because it says, Jesus, a dead man. Uh, the word for dead is in the present tense. So it's not like Festus is saying, well, this Jesus had died, now he's alive. He's saying, Jesus is dead. Um, he hasn't had time to investigate this. He doesn't know anything about what's going on. So why would he say Jesus is a dead man? Because that's what dead men do is they stay dead. It's not normal that dead men are no longer dead but alive. So it's really odd that Paul would say Jesus is alive. Confess that he was dead but that, that he's alive. Um, and hasn't that been the theme, the chronic theme of Paul's ministry since just about the beginning? Jesus is raised from the dead, therefore. So of course Festus would be familiar with that. Of course that would come up. Paul has probably brought that up already um, in some context. So he's heard it. So this is the problem is this Jesus who is supposed to be dead, Paul is claiming to be alive. You know what? It's not illegal to claim somebody who is dead is alive unless you know, you're getting their social security checks or something. Then it's probably illegal. But just for somebody to say that somebody else is alive is probably okay. So Felix, or I mean Festus says, I'm at a loss as how to investigate. I don't even know how to start looking into this thing. What do I do? Agrippa, you've got to help me here. I, I don't have any idea about their laws. I don't have any idea how their laws integrate or don't integrate with Roman law, and I'm not sure where to put this thing. And he said that Paul has in, uh, appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor. Time out. Did he appeal to be kept in custody? He just said, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to the emperor. Um, so some of the commentators said, well, this is just Festus is being self-serving and, gee, aren't I a hero? I didn't delay. I stepped right up and, and took this bull by the horns and, you know, and I, that's why I'm holding my custody. I don't, I don't think that. I didn't get that impression of Festus. I thought he was trying to be a good leader or trying to be an effective ruler. So what does he mean he appealed to be kept in custody? Well, maybe he did. And Luke just didn't record it because who was made aware of the threat against his life in the beginning? Paul was. It was Paul's nephew came and said, hey, Paul, they're going to kill you. So it may be inferred or maybe he actually said, you know what, just keep me in custody until I can get to Rome. That, that's entirely possible. Um, not really a negative, I didn't think anyway. So Agrippa says, I would like to hear the man myself. Agrippa's like, 
this is right up my, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a real aficionado of Jewish things. I'd love to hear this guy. So he's engaged. He wants to hear it. He is going to help out his cohort, his, his, his partner in crime or whatever you want to call him, the co-ruler of the area. I will help you out. We'll take care of this. Um, so let's, let's get together and figure this out. So that's Festus's problem is what do I do with Paul? Where do I put this guy? What category do I put him in? How do I even accuse him of anything? And so what happens is the next day they assemble the court. Now listen to this. This is this is it, it, when we read through it, you can kind of go over it really quick. But if you slow down a little bit, pay attention. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. They didn't just stroll in in their street clothes. You could see Agrippa come in with his purple robe trailing behind him, his crown and his wreath on his head, the golden wreath on his head, attendants coming alongside of him, him proceeding in and, and looking very regal and very important. And right behind him, or maybe right next to him, is his sister Bernice. And she's not wearing street clothes either. She is wearing her finest. She's got the jewels, the, the power, the opulence. She is an important person too. And so these two powerful, important people come proceeding in into Festus's court. And so Festus is probably standing in front wearing an immaculate white toga. There's not a stain on it because he has people, and his people take care of stuff. He doesn't get dirty. He doesn't get his hands dirty. And he's standing up front, and he's receiving these important people as they proceed in. It's just a regal, I keep hearing trumpet horns in my head as they're, they're blowing the horns as this important people proceed in. So they come in with great pomp, and, and, and they're really important folks. They're, they're kind of a big deal. So now I want to back up and explain this Agrippa a little bit more. Is he just some like pretend king? Is he just somebody who's really hung up on his own self-importance? Actually, Agrippa was brought up in Rome, and he was a good friend of Claudius, the emperor. As a matter of fact, it was Claudius who gave him Chalcis, the kingdom of Chalcis. And the reason was because when his grandfather died, he would have given uh, Agrippa the kingdom, but he was only 17. And there was so much turmoil in Judea that he said, no, you're too young, you're too inexperienced to handle this. So he just kind of held on. So when his uncle died, he took over Chalcis because Claudius gave it to him. The emperor said, this is my man, he gets that. And then, once um, he'd taken over Chalcis, the next thing that happened is um, he was a favorite in Nero's court as well. So Nero is the emperor at this point in history. So when, um, when the Tetrarch of Philip became available, Nero himself said, I'm taking you out of the kingdom of Chalcis and I'm going to give you the kingdom of Philip the Tetrarch. I'm going to give you part of the promised land. And then he just kept expanding his rule. He added cities here and there. Not only that, but Agrippa is such a big deal. Even though he doesn't rule in Jerusalem, that's Festus's rule, he is what's called the curator of the temple. It was his responsibility. It was Agrippa's responsibility to appoint and depose high priests. That was his authority. He could do that. He owned, he had authority over the priestly robes, the priestly gowns. So when the priest had to put on the special clothing on, on Yom Kippur and go into the Holy of Holies, they got them from Agrippa. They were his. And the most important thing is he maintained control of the temple treasury. That's a lot of authority over Jewish life. So he is 
in no small terms, a very big deal. Well, his sister was no political lightweight either. She was a pretty big deal. So yeah, she married her uncle, ooh, um, but when her uncle died, she moved in with Agrippa. She, she didn't go like find some you know, rinky-dink little Motel 6 someplace. She moved in with the new king. She stayed with her brother. Well, rumors start, rumors start, right? They just do. So rumors start in not only Palestine, but also in Rome about her relationship with her brother. That's where you can say, ooh, again, um, that there was something untoward going on there. So she wound up marrying another guy, another small kingdom, and that lasted only a couple of years. Then she connects with Titus. Titus will be the next emperor after Nero, and she becomes Titus's um, mistress. Titus is the, the general who led the war against Jerusalem. He's the one who flattened Jerusalem. So she gets connected with him and moves to Rome with him. Well, he's now about to ascend to the throne, and the anti-Semitism in Rome was so bad, he had to put her away. She was this close to being the empress, to being right there. So you see why she's mentioned? Even though, literally, she does nothing for the story. If you're in the first century and you're reading this with Luke, you're going, oh my gosh, you mean Agrippa and Bernice were there? That's who he appeared before? That's kind of a big deal. So she was a pretty big heavy hitter. Even though she wound up being put away when, uh, when Titus became the emperor, she was still had that kind of power, that kind of influence. Could you say, oh, well, you know, my uncle died. I'm going to move in with my brother. There's kind of weird rumors. I think I'll marry a king. You know, she, she just could do that. That's the kind of power and the, the, uh, the position that she had. She could just go marry a king. So these two proceed in. They come marching in. And who's with them? It says the military tribunes. Um, there was one tribune in Jerusalem. A tribune, it's actually the word is chiliarch. It means uh, commander of a thousand. Do you know how many, how many chiliarchs or how many tribunes there were in Caesarea? Five. Five thousand troops were under these men. These are decorated war heroes. These are important people who are military strategists. They are the, the four-star generals of the day. And there's five of them that show up. These aren't lightweight hitters either. These aren't just some you know, centurion standing there with a spear going, you know what's going on? These are big guys. These are really important people. And then the last group that comes in, it says that it was the prominent men of the city. Now, one of the problems in Caesarea was it was predominantly Gentile, but the Jews kind of thought it was theirs, and so there was some wrestling back and forth. So these are probably mostly Gentiles that are standing there, but they're prominent men of the city. They're the people, if you want anything done in the city, you got to see them. If you think you're going to you know, open a, a new shop, these are the folks you're going to have to connect with because they control this major, huge city. Look who's here. The governor of Judea lives there. Five Roman legions are stationed there. And these are the prominent men of the city. These are the, the civilians who run the place. And they're lined up. So picture that hall now. You've got Bernice and Agrippa standing at the front with uh, Festus right next to him, decked out in their finest, all their attendants around them. You've got the military commanders lining the place. You've got the high men of the city. This is the hall that's been set. So if you go past that really quick, you kind of go, oh, well, you know, some people. No, this was the best of the best. This was everything that Caesarea had to offer have now assembled. And so once they've all been brought in, once they've all come and they're assembled and they're steeded and they're ready to hear, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. 
Now, according to, oh, by the way, I'm going to dip my toes into next week, just a couple of places I'm going to touch his defense because it kind of comes up. One of the things he says at the end of his defense is, I wish that you were all like me except for these chains, which means Paul has walked in in chains. Now, Bernice and, and, and Agrippa probably had chains, but they were chains of gold. They, they were, you know, regalia. He comes in in iron chains clad together. He probably is, you know, he was given some liberty, so it's not like he was, you know, taken out of a dungeon or something like that. He was given some liberty, but he's probably not dressed in, a, in the finest things that people could wear at the time. He was Paul. He just was who he was. And so he comes into this big, beautiful assembly. Now, um, what did Paul look like? The, the simple answer is we have no idea. But there is a century, second century work titled The Acts of Paul and uh, Thesia, and it was very early on condemned as fiction. Uh, there's points where it contradicts the Bible, and it, it's clearly fiction, and Thesia was supposed to be this woman who was this great martyr, and um, the Pope at the time condemned it, and um, I can't remember, there were a couple other church history names that you would know would condemned it, but at one point, there is a description of Paul in it. So here's how Paul is described in this, this fictional work. He was small of stature with meeting eyebrows. In other words, unibrow. Bald or shaved head, bow-legged, strongly built, hollow-eyed with a large crooked nose. So maybe that's fiction. Maybe that's just as made up as the rest of it. Maybe it's based on some tradition about what did Paul look like. But you get the idea. He's not the most attractive man. He's kind of small of stature. Um, it actually kind of resonates a bit with, with uh, Corinthians. You know, his appearance is not that great. You know, we're not terribly impressed with him when he comes. And his, speak is, his speech is kind of, you know, mealy mouth. And he's not really attractive. Um, that kind of thing. So it's possible that that, 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 by the way, dominates. And now everybody thinks that's for real. But that's a fictional work. So now imagine this small, unibrowed, bald guy coming in in chains and standing before this tribunal with all the glory of Caesarea, all of the power and um, uh, the presence of Rome standing before them. And here's where, again, we hear one more time, Festus recounts for everybody assembled. He speaks to Agrippa because Agrippa is the most important person in the room, but he's saying it for the benefit of everybody assembled so you can hear what's going on. He tells the story again. Paul is arrested because of the Jews. He's appealed to the emperor, and I don't have anything to say. He says, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. So here's the problem is um, Festus is going to say, I don't think it's reasonable to send a prisoner without a letter. Not only is it not reasonable, it might get him fired. Because Paul shows up, and what are you here for? I'm here to see the emperor. Why? I don't know. Because <laughs> I asked to, I guess. So it was his job to, to hear the case, try the case, and then send a letter along with Paul that said, here's what's been going on, Emperor. This is what you need to know to hear this case. And what Festus is telling not just Agrippa, but the entire assembled people, and even Paul himself, is I have no idea what to say about this guy. No clue. The, I, I got to figure something out. So he says in the end, I, was, I want to hear what he's got to say, and I'm especially thankful for you, King Agrippa, that you, after, he's, um, after we've examined him, that I might have something to write. Agrippa, I'm so glad that you're here. Of course, he already told him that, didn't he? Yeah. 
he's saying it for the benefit of everybody. Agrippa, I want you to hear this, and I want you to help me figure out what I can write to the emperor. And so that's where the story ends. Now, next week, we'll get to see Paul defend himself before this assembly. So the last thing I want to do is just kind of take a moment to reflect back and look at this and say, wait, hang on. Now, how could Paul stand before that much power, before that much authority, before that much uh, opulence? How can he walk in with any kind of confidence and say a thing? These people could snap their fingers and he'd be gone. So while all the beauty of the Roman Empire is there, how can an ugly man, small of stature, in chains, stand in front of them? Wouldn't he, shouldn't he be super intimidated? I don't have really much to say to you wonderful people because you're all so important. Be like going to Hollywood and have all the stars look at you and go, well, I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. It would seem intimidating. So he comes with no army. He comes with no legal authority. He comes with no money and really no freedom at this point. So what has he got to, to offer? What has he got to help him stand there in front of them? Because what we're going to hear next week is a beautiful defense. A brave man who is not intimidated, who's not bothered by these people. I'm glad I'm here to talk to you. What has he got to hang on to? Well, what we're going to hear next week is he gives us a hint. He tells us what he's got to hang on to. In verses 6 and in verse 22, what he says is he's got the promises to hang on to. So let me peek ahead to verse 6. He says, And now I stand on trial before my, uh, because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. So he's standing there with hope in a promise. That's what he's hanging on to. And he says something similar a little bit later on. So he's been giving these promises, and that's what he can hang on to. What other promises has he gotten? Well, he's gotten some very specific promises. Aimed, you know, they got his name stamped right at the top. For example, when he was converted, when he became a disciple of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 9, Jesus sent to him a man, I would say he was a prophet at this point because Jesus gave him a message and he showed up. Ananias came and said, Paul, here's what Jesus has to say to you. He tells Paul, amongst other things, or I'm sorry, Jesus tells Ananias to tell Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He is a chosen instrument. He is chosen. I decided that Paul would do this. I chose him. He is an instrument. I'm going to work through him. The, the, the hammer doesn't exalt itself over the pe person who wields it. He is a chosen instrument of, to carry my name before Gentiles and kings. Who is he standing before at this very moment? Whole slew of Gentiles and a king. He is there. Where is he looking towards? He's looking toward Rome. I'm going to head to a bunch of Gentiles and a king. So he's got this promise. And the promise is, Paul, don't screw this up. I'm giving you this opportunity. Boy, don't screw this up. No, the promise is, you're going to do it. You are a chosen instrument and go. That's his promise from the moment he became a disciple. That's huge. That's what he's got to hang on to. And then do you remember when all of this started, when he got arrested in, in Jerusalem, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. At this point, he can look at them and go, You can't kill me. It's not possible. Why? I'm not in Rome. 
I have been told by Jesus himself, he stood next to me and said, you're going to Rome. So he can walk into this huge, august company and have huge confidence in himself and say, we're not done yet. This isn't over. And he can face all that opulence, all that power, all that authority, because he's got the promise of God wearing on him. Anybody have any of those promises? Has Jesus told you that when you got converted? And, and did he come to you last night and say, this is what's going to happen? This is very rare. We don't get that kind of answer very often. So we can't do this then, right? We don't, we don't have the confidence. Actually, we have some very great and specific promises as well. Uh, one of them stuck on the wall out there. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. All authority. Do you remember what we said last week about respecting authority? Where, does they, where do they get the authority? Where does Agrippa get the authority to be the king? From Caesar? Who give it to Caesar? When Jesus faced Pilate, Pilate said, don't you know I have the authority to kill you or set you free? And Jesus said, you would have nothing if my father in heaven hadn't given it to you. So here's the promise. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. This is, this is then as your command. This is what you do with that. Go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey all I have commanded you. Do you think we can do that if all authority has been given to Jesus? Can we stand before uh, state officials and governors and protesters and anybody else that would stand in the way and say, I, I hear what you have to say. I I'm with you. Let me tell you what the truth is. Why? Because all authority has been given to you? Man, I hope not. Not you, me. <laughs> if I had all authority, I'd mess it up. I'm so grateful that Jesus has got all authority. And so, well, yeah, we can go. We can make disciples. We can teach them to obey. And then he, he cements the promise to us. And behold, I am with you always, even until you get arrested. Uh, behold, I'm, I'm with you always, even until it gets really difficult, and then you're on your own, even till the end of the age. Until this whole thing is complete, Jesus says, don't worry, I'm with you. That's, the pro that's one of the promises that we can hold on to. That's a promise that's made for us. So, so Paul says that I'm here because of my hope and the promise. That's a discipleship thing that we can grab onto, too. We've been given promises that we can hang on to. There are promises that the full number of the Gentiles, this is Romans chapter 11, the full number of the Gentiles will come in. <laughs> There's a number. I, don't, I, I wish I knew what it was. God's got it figured out. He knows when that full number has come in, then all Israel will be saved. And then the end comes, and then Jesus returns. So don't worry, folks. He's got this under control. He's got it planned out. He knows what he's doing. All authority has been given to him. He's sent us to go make disciples of the nations. He has a full number. There's a plan. There's a definite plan set in place. So we can have confidence to step out and say, yeah, we can do this. Not because it depends on us, not because we're strong enough, but because Jesus has gotten all authority. So first of all, Paul has the promises. He's hanging on the promises. By the way, that's what it means to have faith, is to trust the promises, to say, that's where my hope is. That's where I'm hanging on to. What's the second thing? Well, if we learn anything from this elaborate history lesson, um, sometimes I get frustrated with history lessons like this. I felt we kind of had to do it. 
um, because you can get lost in minutia. And by the way, there was much more minutia that we could have been lost in. Thank me later for not getting lost in it. But if there's anything we learn from that, it's that these powerful folks are transitory. They come and they go, right? Festus, man, powerful guy. Didn't he replace Felix? And a number of years ago, wasn't Pontius Pilate the guy that was in that chair? And guess what? Gaius is going to replace Festus in just a few short years. So yeah, you know, you, you look at these folks and go, yeah, they're really important. Agrippa didn't, what about Agrippa's history? He replaced his uncle. He replaced his uh, cousin or whatever it is, Philip. And, and his position keeps going. And guess what? He's dead. So his position keeps coming and going. You don't get that permanently. Let's back up and take a bigger picture. Rome. Rome rules the world at this time. The known world is under Rome's thumb. This was like one of the highest points in Roman history. Well, guess where Rome came from? Rome replaced Greece after Alexander the Great died. Alexander the Great rushed across the world, the known world at the time. Rome stepped in to his footprints and took over, basically. Well, what about Alexander the Great? Well, he took over from the Medes and Persians. They had been running the world for a while. And Medes and Persians, well, they took over for the Babylonians, who had been running the world for a while. And the Babylonians, by the way, took over for the Assyrians, and on and on and on and on. So do you get the idea? These folks, as powerful and important as they are, are not permanent. They're going to go away at some point. Jesus, and we sang this today, I'm so grateful how the Lord sometimes brings the words from the, the songs and the words from the message together. Jesus conquered. He conquered the grave. He conquered, conquered sin and death. And where is he now? He is sitting on David's throne. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David. One of your children will sit on your throne forever. Will one of Agrippa's sons sit on the throne forever? No, he's gone. Will one of Caesar's sons sit on the throne forever? No, they're gone. Jesus is seated on David's throne. He is seated with authority in heaven. So when Paul steps into this company, he recognizes these folks have a lot of power. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of authority. And it's all going to turn to dust one day. But the promise that we have, and Paul himself writes this, is that we will reign with Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Boy, could he have written that right at this moment, huh? By the word, but by the word of God, but, I'm sorry, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, enduring everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, this saying is trustworthy. Four, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. We attain to the resurrection. If we endure, we will reign with him. We will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. No, I'm not going to explain that part. Revelation chapter 20. This is where we get to reign with him. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. They, they are resurrected with him, 
they will reign with him. The thousand years I take to mean an appropriate long period of time, a full period of time. That's the promise, is if we, reign, if we are resurrected with him, then we reign with him. Where has Paul's argument been all the way through Acts so far? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Didn't, didn't Festus even say that? Jesus, a dead man, Paul says is alive. It has been all rooted in the resurrection. That's why I'm like, you're going to hear this a lot. You can hear this repeated often, but it's okay because it's a good message. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, he is the Messiah. Because he is raised from the dead, he sits on David's throne never to die again. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, we will be raised like him. Because Jesus is raised from the dead and sits on David's throne and we will be like him, we will reign with him. So when Paul steps in and sees these people, he can look at them and go, yeah, but one day, I'm, I'm going to be with the Lord and I'm going to be ruling over all of this. So let me answer you, not as an inferior person, an ugly guy with a unibrow and chains. Let me answer you as equals. Let me, let me approach you not as some subhuman, but as the same thing as you are. Here's the good news. And we'll hear that next week. Don't forget, Rome did not have the idea that all people were created equal. That was fairly unique to the American Revolution. Rome's idea was, well, all the emperors are created equal, and the rest of y'all, maybe, maybe not. You might make it, you might not. They didn't have a high respect for human life. Paul comes in with this idea that we are created in God's image. Jesus died for Jew and Gentile alike. He commands it, he tells us, pray for those in power. He looks at these folks and says, you are just like me. You're dust just like me. So that's the other part of this thing that Paul holds on to is the, the hope in the resurrection, the fact that, that we will rule with Christ and he can face them. And next week we get to hear what he has to say to power. The, have you ever heard that phrase, uh, speaking truth to power? It don't get more truth to power than next week. That, that's the absolute truth. That's where he's going to go with this. So if we are looking at this and saying, what's, what are disciples supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this text? How are we supposed to connect with this? I think what we're supposed to do is look to Paul as an example here. And to have the same confidence, not confidence in ourselves. It's not over the top, I'm so wonderful, I'm so smart. It's a humble confidence. And remember how I've defined humility in the past. Humility is seeing ourselves the way God sees us. So when God makes a promise and he says, you are my chosen instrument, Paul can say, that is humility, is to say that I am a chosen instrument of God, therefore I can come up and talk to these people. That's not hubris. That's not pride. That is actual humility. But humility is not being milk toast and going, oh, your great highness, wonderfulness, I would just love to worship your feet. That wouldn't be hum humility. That's not seeing yourself as God seeing you. That's seeing you as Herod sees you. That's seeing you as Caesar sees you. That's seeing you as Agrippa sees you. You're a thing. To see ourselves as God sees us gives us great, tremendous power and authority and confidence. And that's, that's the, the uh, definition of humility because it ain't about us. So that's, I, I can't wait. Do you want to stick around just do next week's now? Should we just keep going? I, I kind of can't wait, but um, we'll have to put it off until next week if that's all right. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, um, you were dead. Three days in a tomb um, after being scourged and crucified, 
bleeding profusely, laid in a, in a chilly tomb underground for a couple of days. Lord, there's no way you survived. No way anybody would survive. You died. But Lord, when the women came to the tomb, when Peter and John ran to the tomb, when the soldiers looked at the tomb, you weren't there because, Lord, you, you overcame death. You are the ultimate conqueror. And so, Lord, you are over Caesar. You are over uh, Agrippa. You are over uh, Festus. Lord, you are over the governor of the state of California. You are over the maniac in North Korea. Lord, you are over all of these things. And so I pray that that would grant your church great confidence to know that you are on the throne, that the king has risen, and Lord, that there is a day coming when you will judge the living and the dead. Father, I pray that wouldn't fill us with fear, but anticipation, and make us earnest for the work that we have to do between now and then. Lord, give us confidence, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.